Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 468. It's titled, Lessons from Japan's 34-Year Stock Bear Market. Last week, the Nikkei 225 index in Japan broke through its peak after 34 years. It reached its high in December 1989. And since then, the price return of the index has been essentially zero. There have been some dividends over that 34-year period through the end of January. The MSCI, Japan index, returned 1.1% annualized. All of that return was from dividends. We can compare that to the U.S. stock market, which returned 9.6% annualized over that same 34-year period. Bruce Kirk, who is chief Japan equity strategist at Goldman Sachs, says it's an incredibly important barrier for Japan to have finally broken through. For the last 30-plus years, Japan has been persistently framed in relation to that December 1989 bubble-era Nikkei all-time high. No matter how well it has done since the market finally bottomed, their narrative has always been tempered with an element of skepticism that references the high watermark. If we look at Japan back in 1989, the stock market made up 37.5% of global stock market capitalization. But by the end of 2022, it was 6.3%. Compare that the U.S. now makes up 58% of the global stock market. There's some things that we can learn from this 34-year, we'll call it a bear market, but a bear market is an extended down period. And the Japanese stock market is, is definitely in an uptrend. It's up 17.5% this year alone. But if we think about this just extended 34-year of underperformance, never exceeding that 1989 high, that is an incredibly long wait. And there's some reasons for that, and there's some things that we can learn. And in this episode, we're going to play a portion of four different episodes. This is a super episode on Japan. I have covered Japan numerous times on the show. I have visited the country four times. I'm going back in May for the first time since late 2018, early 2019. But we want to share what it is about Japan that's unique but also has led to this challenging market environment for 34 years. First, let's deconstruct these long-term returns for Japan compared to the U.S. Japan returned 1.1% annualized. The U.S. stock market returned 9.6% annualized. The dividend yield contribution over that time frame is around 1.2% to 1.5% for both Japan and the U.S., Earnings in the U.S. have grown faster over that 34-year period compared to Japan. On an earnings per share basis, the earnings per share growth rate for the U.S. stock market as measured by the MSCI USA index has been 6.2% annualized versus 3.1% for the MSCI Japan index. Earnings have grown twice as fast in the U.S., and that's due to better demographics, more a growth in the U.S. workforce, and productivity improvements, greater use of technology to produce more with less. Now, over that 34-year period, the Japanese stock market would have earned over 4% annualized, including earnings growth and dividend yields, except 
for the bubble. And it clearly was a bubble in 1989. The price-to-earnings ratio, what investors were willing to pay for a dollar's worth of stocks back in 1989 was 51.9. Now it's 17 times earnings. That costs the Japanese stock market 3.1% annualized. A 3.1% drag due to the valuations being very high and then slowly over the years declining. If we compare that to the U.S. stock market, back in 1989, it had a price-to-earnings ratio of 14.1, much, much cheaper than Japan. Now the U.S. stock market, as measured by the MSCI USA index, which is comparable to the S&P 500, is 25.4. So more expensive than average. And that increase in the P.E. ratio contributed 1.7% annualized to that 9.6% annualized return for the U.S. stock market. Without that, the U.S. stock market would have returned closer to 8% annualized. So now we're in a position where Japan stock are relatively inexpensive. The cyclically adjusted price-to-earnings ratio, which is the P.E. based on inflation-adjusted earnings over the past decade, it's 15.9 in Japan versus 30.2 for the U.S. stock market. Will the U.S. continue to outperform the Japanese stock market going forward? Well, we'll see in this episode, there, there's definitely some things in the U.S.'s favor in terms of productivity, in terms of demographics. But that doesn't mean Japan can't change. They could bring in more immigrants. The culture could change, and it is changing for women to stay in the workforce for longer. More productivity improvements, greater use of technology and, and innovation. Those things can help. Japan, and any other country. So let me share with you some remastered segments of episodes from Money for the Rest of Us and our premium podcast, Money for the Rest of Us Plus. First episode I'll share is Plus Episode 38 from January 2015, followed by Plus Episode 73, September 2015, Episode 178 from October 2017, and then episode 235 from January 2019. And these episodes share challenges in Japan, my experiences in, in visiting Japan, what's unique about it. And after listening to that, I'll follow up with some, some lessons that we can take away from those four episodes about Japan and what we can learn from a 34-year bear market. So with that, let's go ahead and I'll start with those two plus episodes from 2015. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from one of this week's sponsors, Monarch Money. If you had been using Mint to manage your finances like I was, you know they shut down. Well, let me tell you about the solution I've been using for the past few months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have a custom budget. I really like their cash flow screen so I can see which budget categories I've spent the most in each month. I especially like Monarch because they'll never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash David. That's M-O-N 
A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. I've been pretty fascinated with Japan the past really three or four years. Japan was, you know, throughout my college and graduate school, this was sort of 80s to early 90s, Japan was sort of held out as the model of corporate efficiency and how to grow an economy. And, you know, after World War II and then and beginning in the sort of the 60s to the 80s, Japan had some, some of the highest growth rates in the world. It was effectively like China is today, or at least China was five years ago accelerated growth, export-led growth. And so they were always sort of pointed out as you know very high-quality products. And I think the term is karitsu, the, all the sort of the corporate relationships between the different companies. And, and Japan was the model up until about 1990. And I remember living, no, working, I had a temp job at a high-tech firm. And one of the programmers there was really into buying call options on Japanese stocks. Call options are basically derivative securities and you benefit when the stock price goes up. And he'd put a lot of money because he'd made a lot of money and he kept doubling down. And essentially early 1990s, that year 1990, the stock market in Japan fell by half that year. And I just remember the just how discouraged and frustrated he was because he had lost all this money in options. And I don't know how much he was investing in that. But that was sort of the beginning of what is known as the lost decades. And yet when you use a term like lost decade, it's a label and it's hard to just, you just can't put labels on something like that. I remember having, and I've mentioned this before, I believe, dinner with a friend, a German expat who lives and works in Japan. And, and I had mentioned this whole concept of lost decade and, and potential suffering. And he said, if, if we were supposed to have a lost decade or Nobody, somebody forgot to tell us. In other words, it's hard to, to see suffering. And my friend in Japan didn't necessarily see it. And he, and he thought the per capita, the economy in Japan has done okay. In fact, I think per capita the past 20 years, it has pretty much paralleled the U.S. Overall, Japanese economy has not grown as high. But because the population is shrinking in Japan, the economic output or the measure of what was produced per person has actually stayed fairly even with the U.S. But Japan is a paradox. It really is. And because there's a number of things with Japan, and I've been there twice. So most recently in 2013, I was there in 2010 and totally blown away by at least my Western eyes looking at what appeared to be a very harmonious culture, a sense of reverence, Tokyo has got to be the quietest big city I've ever been in. No no cars honking, very, very little that I heard. I mean, it's not like New York where you essentially communicate by honking your horn with the taxi drivers. You didn't see that in Japan. Taxi drivers wore white gloves, they had doilies on the back of their seats. I mean, those are some of the things I remember, but just completely blown away by, by how different it was. And ever since then, I've tried to come, try to understand Japan, because one of the things that fascinates me about it is the quality of some of their, essentially their handmade goods or their their textiles, their clothes, their, their fashion. I mean, certainly their electronics, but it, it's the, 
the workwear, the the folk crafts, and just how some of these things have been passed down, and how the Japanese people, at least from what I saw, really appreciate great craftsmanship and value that. And so that was something that it's always fascinated me as I found kind of these small boutiques. In fact, it's amazing how many American or U.S. heritage brands actually sell to Japan and do special releases simply to Japan. And you can only get the items in Japan because there's a demand for it, that, that high, very high quality, and they have a fascination with, with some American-made goods. But then I contrast that with other things in Japan, which gets back to this whole concept of mobile wealth, and, or just time wealth, really. Lifetime in, in Japan is very much overworked. 33% of Japanese workers use up all their vacation compared to 89% in France, 57% in the U.S. And 60 to 80 hour work weeks is common. There is such a the desire or the cultural expectation that you don't leave your job until your boss leaves. And mandatory overtime is the norm where you generally don't leave your job till 8, 9 o'clock. And that's starting sort of 8, 9 in the morning. And so these 12-hour days are common. And there, there's a phenomenon in Japan called two, two words. One is karo jizatsu, which is suicide by overwork, and karoshi, which is death from overwork. And in graduate school or undergrad, there's always this concept of lifetime employment. But the Japanese workplace, at least as I understand it, for salary men is very hierarchical. And so the, essentially you're, you're rewarded for perseverance and endurance, not necessarily creativity. Now, again, that's perhaps those are cliches, but uh, I'm basing at least on the research that I've done, which I believe is well documented and a number of other things with Japan. So if you work there, you work many hours and it's hard to have time wealth and mobile wealth when there's that level of expectation. And it's one reason the, at least as I see it, the demographics are not Japan's favor in terms of the population shrinking because the men, particularly the men, work so many hours. And women, generally speaking, are still not given the level or the, the career opportunities that men are in Japan. So those are the lifetime workers, but then you have the non-regular workers, those that work temp jobs, which I believe in the manufacturing se sector is up to 40%. And in Japan, there's really, because it's perseverance that's rewarded and endurance and rank in terms of how long you've been at a job is so key and respect for elders is so key. They generally only hire lifetime workers very young, right after college. You have kind of a window of one or two years. And if you do not have a full-time regular employment by the time you're in the late 20s, it's very, very difficult to get hired. You just don't have the mobility of workforce that you see in other Western nations. Now, I I'm not going to say that's bad or good. It's just, it's a cultural observation. And the point is mobile wealth, time wealth, very much can differ from country to country. But even in Japan, if someone wanted to, they could choose an entrepreneurial lifestyle or a different lifestyle. And you're starting to see some in Japan do that. But the cultural expectation, the norm is still the 60 to 80 hours works week, lifetime employment, corporate culture, and it'll be amazing to see how that turns out. Very different from, from what I'm used to. And obviously, everyone can kind of create their own life.
Okay, that was Plus Episode 38. Let's continue with Plus Episode 73 from September 2015. Today, I want to talk about investing in Japan. I got an email from a member who is moving back to Japan. Most of her assets are invested in U.S. dollars through U.S. financial institutions. She's going to transfer back some of her assets back there. But she she really is asking, at some point, she wants to purchase a home and saw that I'd reduced my allocation to Asia slightly and just kind of wanted to know about investing in Japan, whether it was a good market or not. Another one, she really asked whether I was defensive in Japan. And so I wanted to share a little bit about my thoughts on it. I mean, she mentions the increase in tourism related to the Olympics in 2020 is bringing some excitement, growth in construction and many retail services, but she doesn't want to lose her investment by the bubble burst like 20 years ago. And so let me talk a little bit about Japan. It is not a country that I have significant investment. I'm not allocated to Japan. Specifically, I have in the past, right after quantitative easing was announced in Japan. But a couple things. When you look at the Japanese stock market, and I pulled up a chart this morning. As she mentioned when the bubble burst in 1989, the, the market has not ever fully recovered. In other words, we've never, Japan has never hit the high that was achieved back in 1989. And as we see here almost 20 years later, it never recovered. The Japanese stock market essentially has gone sideways. Now it's gone down and it certainly has done very well in the last year or two as quantitative easing economics was announced and you've seen a rebound. But ultimately, there's a couple things going on in Japan that provide some serious, serious long-term headwinds. Now, you had a a debt bubble burst, and so you had a a long period of deleveraging, particularly by the corporate sector, and their their willingness to borrow was sort of like any any huge event, such as a depression-like scenario, causes some pause before people do the same thing over again. I I think some in the U.S. have that regarding housing and and sort of burned once, maybe not willing to quite do that again. So there, there has been, you know, a reluctance among the corporate sector to to borrow because of just this long deleveraging process. But the main challenge with Japan is the demographics. The population in Japan is shrinking. It's declined in the past year. And if we go back to the basis of investing, when you buy a stock, you are essentially buying a discounted cash flow of future Profits essentially, so it's future profits valued in today's dollar. I mean that that's the theoretical basis of investing in a stock, and what drives those future profits collectively as an economy, it's an index that tracks the the Japanese stock market, is the growth of the economy. Because as the economy grows, that is a very very tight connection between economic growth and corporate profit growth, and the two things at the core that drive economic growth are productivity increases, in other words, workers becoming more efficient at making things, and an increase in population or increase in the number of workers. And so when you have a country where the population is shrinking, then that's a headwind because you don't have half of the, the elements that drive an economy and economic growth and ultimately corporate profit growth isn't there. You have to be even more productive to compensate for the shrinking population. 
And that, in my view, is one of the, the huge risks of Japan. And Japan is a wonderful place to, to live. In fact, Lapril and I, we've talked about going and just living for a number of months in Japan just because it's such a pleasant place to visit. But from an investing standpoint, when you have that type of headwind from a shrinking population, then that really puts a damper on the ability of companies over, over the long term to grow their profits, at least domestically. Now, a lot of companies in Japan are able to export, and that certainly has provided some growth, particularly as the yen has weakened. But that's one of my big concerns with Japan, and I think it does reflect in the stock market, right? If the long-term expectation is it's going to be more difficult for companies to grow the corporate profits because it's a challenge for the economy to grow because the population is not growing, perhaps that is weighing down on, on the stock market. And why it's never surpassed in 20 years, it's still below its high back in 1989. Now, clearly, 89 was a bubble. So for this member that's moving back to Japan, I personally, if I was moving back to Japan, I, I would continue to heavily diversify my investing to other countries. You know, perhaps you have some exposure. And, you know, I'm comfortable having some exposure to Japan right now for some of the things that the, the, the very positive market internals, right, where you do see you do have this excitement about the Olympic. I mean, clearly, if the central bank is buying stocks, that has attracted other foreign investors in Japan. And so those are, are sort of short intermediate positives, but the longer-term trends are a little disconcerting. In September and October 2017, I visited Japan for 12 days. This is the episode that I recorded right after getting back on my impressions of Japan and things that I learned on that trip. I recently returned from 12 days or so in Japan. When I travel there, at times it's completely overwhelming. So many people, and just Here's a, here's a quote by Pico Iyer. He's an essayist and author. He lives in Nara, Japan, and he pretty much sums up how I felt as I traveled there. It's from a piece titled, Why We Travel. He writes, But for the rest of us, the sovereign freedom of traveling comes from the fact that it whirls you around and turns you upside down and stands everything you took for granted on its head. That's how I felt, just completely turned upside down. At one point, my son and I were traveling during rush hour. We were on the train going from Itsonomiya to Imiachi. This is in north of Tokyo. And train is crowded. Nobody says anything. Very, very quiet. Everybody kind of looks down. Nobody stares in Japan. And we got off at our stop. And it's just a swarm of people carrying us along. But Japan, visually stimulating. The entire week, including Tokyo, is a population of 9 million people. The greater Tokyo area, around 32 million people. I heard only one car horn honk. People don't lock their bikes. The kids ride and walk to school by themselves. Small, small children. I saw one child, he must have been eight, and we were in Harajuku. He's on his bike and just busy, busy intersection. Just runs, rides, rides through right at all the people coming at him crossing at the crosswalk. Saw the rice harvest for the first time. I did see homeless people. But very, very few. And those that I saw were just under under the underpasses in homes. They'd made out of boxes, very elaborate homes. No one asked for money the entire week. We stayed at a traditional yokan, traditional hotel, and with an onsen, the bath. And just to be there to observe. And it's hard to, it's just anecdotes. When you go somewhere, you really just get anecdotes. That can turn you completely around. The cars in Japan, we rented a Toyota Corolla. 
And it felt like one of the biggest cars on the road because the lanes are very narrow and most cars were smaller than that. And you drive on the left side of the road, which I've done before, but it can be very, very confusing. The hardest part this time, though, is because you're driving on the left side of the road, your steering wheel is on the right side of your car. And your turn signal, you do use it with your right hand instead of your left. On your left, you have the wiper blades. So for the first few days, I was constantly turning on the wiper blades in order to signal my turn. But then after a week or so, I got used to it. When I come back to Idaho, I'm always turning on my wiper blades with my right hand to signal my turn. Another thing I noticed is cold in Japan a lot. They don't often heat. We were using Airbnb mostly. Often the front rooms, where the heaters are space heaters, typically. And often the kitchen dining area isn't heated. I have no idea why. The toilet room is never heated. That's why the Japanese have perfected the art of the heated toilet seat. But you sit at the table because you sit on the ground, typically at a very low table. But there's usually often a heating blanket right there around the table to keep you warm because there's no heat. But as a result, Japan uses about half the energy of the U.S. on a per capita basis. Probably the biggest thing I noticed, especially as you go out into the countryside, is many of the workers really, really old. The security guards, most of them were in their 70s. The garbage men, many of them were in their 70s, maybe older, because Japanese, generally speaking, always seem to look very, very young, even as they age. So I don't know how old. Clearly, there was a lot of older people continuing to work. Now, Tokyo seems very, very young, a lot of young people, but you go out into the countryside and it's mostly older people. A reason for this is Japan's population is shrinking. They peaked in 2008 at 128 million. Now the population is 127 million. And the National Institute of Population and Social Security Research estimates that by 2065, the population in Japan will be only 88 million. 30% decline in the population. And the young people are attracted, like in many countries, to the city, Tokyo, greater Tokyo area. I misspoke. It's 38 million people. Tokyo City's 9.3 million. And there's plenty of jobs in Tokyo. There are two job openings for every candidate in Tokyo. Now, unemployment rate across the country is 2.8%. So with a shrinking population, plenty of jobs. And if you're older, you can continue to work. Often encouraged to work because who's going to collect the garbage if there's no young people in the village or town to do it? We visited the monk where my son cut wood. This is a monk, that Buddhist monk and pottery. He cut wood for him, split wood for two weeks about three years ago. We, we went back, small town where this, this monk is. Nice, nice guy. He says, I have no money. All I have is wood. And he had piles of it everywhere. He burns his kiln once a year. But in that town, they, they shut the school down because there really there wasn't any more kids in this small little village. They didn't need a school there. The world population is expected to increase by 28% from 2016 to 2050. But there are countries where their population is expected to shrink. Japan is the leader in that, followed by Poland, Hungary, Germany, Taiwan. All are expected to have population declines of greater than 10%. Russia, Portugal, Hong Kong, Greece, South Korea, and China will see their populations likely slump by over 5%. And one of the the contributions, primary determinants of economic growth is how many workers are there? And is 
the working age population increasing. Economists David Bloom and David Canning found that when you increase the growth rate in the working age population as a share of the total population by one percentage point, that results in an increase in the rate in per capita GDP of 1.4%. And why is that? Well, economic growth is a function of workers, long-term economic growth, the number of workers, and how productive they are. As the working age population or the working, you know, the working age population grows, they actually, that means more economic growth because you do have more workers, but you also get higher productivity because those workers have skills that they develop. And as long as, as we talked about last week, as long as we're investing in their skills to improve them and keeping up to date. But just when you start a new job, you gradually get better just naturally over time, hopefully. And so as you have the youth move into the working age, you get this productivity increase as you get this this groundswell of workers getting more productive. And as there are less youth dependents, that frees up capital that can be put to use in capital expenditures and productivity-enhancing projects. And as a result, as the working age population increases, you see higher economic growth and you see better performance for the stock market because the faster the economic growth, the greater the corporate profits and long-term stock returns are higher in countries that are experiencing economic growth and experiencing an increase in the working age population as a percent of the total population. Today around the world, 66% of the world's population is working age. And by 2050, it's expected to fall to 63%. But in Japan, they're going to have the smallest share of the world's working age population by 2050. Only 49%. And 40% of their population will be seniors, the elderly. Japan's working age population as a percent of its total population peaked in 1992. So their population is shrinking, but it's also getting older. The dependency ratio of the seniors to the working population is it's getting more severe. So right now, there are roughly two people of working age per senior, but it's expected to grow to two retirees for every three workers by the year 2050. So you're going you're gonna to have fewer people supporting each retiree. And that also has an impact on the budget. Right now, Japan spent about 16.6% of GDP on benefits to the elderly. It's expected to grow to 20.9% by 2040. Compared to that to the U.S., U.S. spends about 13.6% of GDP on benefits for the elderly, expected to grow to 18.5%. But there's some countries that are even worse. Italy and France both spend about 20% of GDP currently on the elderly, and it's expected to grow to 24 to 26% by the year 2040. And so that, that's a challenge. But the challenge is it's not so much of these accounting issues, what percent of GDP is being spent on the elderly, who's spending the money, how much is the government spending. The fundamental issue is will there be enough workers to produce the goods and services that the aging population needs? If there's not enough workers and they're not able to, to somehow produce, then you're going to get inflation because you get constrained capacity. Now, Japan is not suffering any type of, of inflation at present. Really, they've been fighting against deflation. A friend that we met up with in Tokyo, they're looking to buy their first home. 
And he wrote me the other day, he wanted to know, should that go with a variable rate loan or a fixed rate loan? Check out these interest rates. Variable rate loan interest rate was 0.65%. And the fixed rate was 0.97%. Imagine having a mortgage rate with under 1%. That's what you get in Japan. Plus, they get a subsidy of up to 1% of the purchase price of their home from the government to buy this home. And that's for a 35-year mortgage, very, very long mortgage. So what can Japan and other countries do to make sure there's enough workers, that they're able to produce the goods and services they need to support an aging and a shrinking population? Well, the first thing they could do is they could increase the female labor force participation rate. In the U.S., about 57% of women are working. In Japan, only 48%. Oftentimes when a woman, they have a child, they, they stop working. And there's something within the Japanese culture that just discourages the, the women continuing to work as they get older. That's probably something that's going to need to change. I saw they were in the midst of the, a, the election for the lower house of parliament. And as you drive around Japan in the rural areas, there's these sign, there's these wooden sign boards and people put their candidates for parliament, put up their picture and their name, mostly men. New York Times reports only 9% of seats in the lower house of parliament are held by women. That ranks 165 out of 193 countries. That's not, not real diverse in terms of the parliament. And fewer than one in five candidates running in Sunday's election this past Sunday were women. And, and that also is, you see that in the workforce. So you need a higher female participation rate in the workforce to sort of have the workforce to produce the goods and services of an aging population. Another option is immigration. Japan has not been particularly open to immigration. As you, as you go around Tokyo and around the country, mostly Japanese. When I was in Norway, you go around and you see a large number of immigrants. Japan's expected to lose 6 million people ages 15 to 54 as the country ages over the next decade. And so to replace that, you would need upwards of 600,000 immigrants per year. And the government's tried to put into place some programs, call them internships, to attract mainly cheap labor to work on the farms and in some of the factories. A lot of, a lot of I guess, fr from China. But it, it needs to be, I mean, if they're going to use immigration, it's going to be hundreds and hundreds of thousands of new immigrants per year. The other option is automation, robots. Here's a country where automation is not going to take jobs away from workers in the sense that the workers won't have jobs and the unemployment will rise because of a shrinking population. They really can benefit from automation and robotics. So more women in the workforce, more immigrants and more automation will help Japan offset a shrinking population and produce enough goods and services to meet the needs of seniors. Now, whenever we talk about shrinking population, I've talked about this in earlier episodes. What about the debt? Japan has the highest indebtedness of any country in the world in terms of government debt. Will they default? Well, interesting piece by Noah Smith of Bloomberg from last month. He writes, since the vast bulk of Japan's government debt is owned by Japanese people, the question isn't about paying back external creditors. It's a matter of distribution of economic resources among the Japanese people. 
the government defaulted on its debt tomorrow, it would certainly hurt the financial system and cause a recession. The most lasting effect would be to let Japanese taxpayers off the hook, while Japanese bondholders would find themselves less wealthy. The country wouldn't have a fundamentally weaker economy. All the factories and land and people and know-how would still be there. But the promises about who gets to receive the fruits of that economy would be shifted. That's a point I've made in numerous episodes. The wealth of a nation is its ability to produce. It's its workers. It's its land. It's its factories. It's people. And if Japan decides to default on its debt, because it would be a decision, then it's just a redistribution in terms of potentially hurting the, the elderly who hold most of those bonds as the retirement savings. And it, it would be disruptive, but it's all counting, and they will work it out. Japan, population is aging, but they're going to adapt. They'll adapt. We're seeing it now. When you see 75-year-old garbage men, that they're adapting. When you see the automation, just the sheer number of vending machines everywhere, doesn't take as many workers if you're buying food from a vending machine as opposed to a restaurant. More automation. So Japan will adapt. But when you look at the potential impact on the Japanese stock market long term, they're not a country where the working age population is going to be growing. It's going to peak in 2020. But then there's going to be a demographic headwind, which is why as investors, it's often good to overweight areas that have a demographic dividend where you see the working age population increasing. And by and large, those are younger, less developed countries. Emerging markets have that demographic tailwind. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team, faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right software professionals to develop some of our tools has made all the difference in the world. And LinkedIn Jobs can help you find the right candidates for your position. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. That's why 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. Post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns. Meaning, when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal. Rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money is breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. 
Performance is not guaranteed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This episode is episode 235, recorded in Japan, January 2019, about the Japanese housing market and how different it is. I hope you enjoy this segment of that episode. But what's interesting, over the last three weeks, we've been traveling in Japan. I'm currently recording this in Tokyo. It's a very different housing market. In many ways, it's an anti-bubble. Japan land prices, and I pulled this up from a, an annual study on Japanese home prices. I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes. I actually, I forget the name of the bank, the Japanese bank that compiles the data. But nationally, since 1991, that was the peak of the Japanese housing market. Home prices have fallen, or actually, this is just land. This is just land, the valuable part of a house or a residential area. It has fallen 23 out of the past 28 years. And land values nationally in Japan have fallen 50% since 1991. And they've declined 1.5% annually for the past decade. 2018 was the first year in many years that Japanese land prices were positive, up 0.3%. Tokyo's done a little better. They have Tokyo area land prices have fallen 20 out of the past 29 years. Land prices have declined 70% since 1991. There was a bigger bubble there. The average decline has been 1% per year over the past decade. So it's not fallen quite as much as nationally, which fell 1.5% annually. But over the past five years, it's actually been positive. 0.7% average appreciation for land prices in the Tokyo area over the last five years. And they were up 1% in 2018. But the trend has been down every year, particularly if you get outside of the Tokyo area. And partly, why? Because as we've talked about in other episodes, the demographics, the population within Japan is shrinking. There are less people to own land. And as a result, land has been in a downward price spiral. And what about houses? I mean, that's land. Maybe houses are actually doing better than land and you can, act, you can get appreciation. Nope. This is from The Guardian. This is an article from November 2016. It's titled, Raise, Rebuild, Repeat. Why Japan Knocks Down Its Houses After 30 Years. The quote is, unlike in other countries, Japanese homes gradually depreciate over time, becoming completely valueless within 20 or 30 years. When someone moves out of a home or dies, the house, unlike the land it sits on, has no resale value and is typically demolished. This scrap and build approach is a quirk of the Japanese housing market that can be explained variously by low quality construction to quickly meet demand after the Second World War, repeated building code revisions to improve earthquake resilience, and a cycle of poor maintenance due to the lack of any incentive to make homes marketable for resale. So if the house is going to depreciate anyway, how much do you put into the house and how much quality do you put into it? We're staying in a duplex in Tokyo, in the Meguro area. 
And the owner lives upstairs, and we were downstairs. 27-year-old house. I asked her how long she's lived here. She says, she was born here. She's around 60, and she's lived in the same spot. But they tore the house down 27 years ago and built a new one. And when I asked her, is that normal? She seemed surprised by the question. Of course it's normal. (laughs) What else would you do? Houses get old. You tear them down. In fact, as I record this, they're building a house about 30 feet away. It's really noisy. I waited till they went to lunch. Hopefully they've gone to lunch. But when the workers come back, you'll you'll hear hammering and sawing because they are rebuilding a house that was torn down. My friend lives out in the Tokyo area, out by Narita Airport. They bought a house in the last year. And it's a tough decision to buy a house. Mortgage rates are really attractive. You can get a 21 to 35-year-old, 35-year mortgage for 0.9% as of January 2019. Less than 1% for a mortgage. They bought a house. It's 97 square meters, about 291 square feet. It's very small, he says, and they paid $200,000 for it. He said that was inexpensive for the area. They were originally asking 300000 but they lowered it because they weren't sure it was going to sell fast enough. And after a few months, it wasn't considered new anymore, even though no one had ever lived in it. And they've actually done that. He and, and, and my son, they've, they've seen home builders tear down a brand new house that no one ever bought and to rebuild a new one because it was old. Now, that, that's a quirk, but it's something that's been going on for generations in Japan. There's another quirk about Japanese houses. We've stayed in five different Airbnbs on this trip. Kyoto, Osaka, Hiroshima, the Gunma Prefecture, and Tokyo. And one defining characteristic is each one of those houses, some were new, some were older, they were absolutely freezing. The entryways, the hallways, the bathroom, no heat at all. Temperatures here have been 40, in, the, in the 40s, going down into the 30s Fahrenheit at night. You'd want some heat in the bathroom. And the Japanese are very innovative. They have heated toilet seats, yet the bathrooms have no heat. Several of the homes we stayed in had no heat even in the kitchen. Very little insulation in Japanese homes. Why is it? Why are Japanese houses so cold? The first reason I thought that Japanese houses were so cold is because if you're buying a depreciating asset, why put that much into it if you know it's going to fall in price? But that turns out not to be the case. Here's an article from the Financial Times. They write that Japanese houses traditionally prioritize airflow over insulation with paper screens, bamboo shutters, and permeable walls saving the house from mold. And that's continued to today in that they heat one room at a time and it saves energy. Japan uses a quarter of the energy for heating as Germany does, the article points out. And here's a quote from Alastair Townsend. He's co-founder of Bakoko. It's a Tokyo architectural practice. He writes, the attitude to the thermal environment is different in Japan. It's getting snug under a kotatsu, which is a heated table, rather than walking through the house in a t-shirt. And the article says, unlike most other developed countries, Japan has never graduated from local heat sources, such as hearths, to a thermostat system. Now people rely on air conditioners, gas or kerosene heaters, or simply a 10-minute soak in a scalding hot bath to get them through a chilly evening. So it isn't because they're cheap. They'd like that connection to the outdoors, which includes being cold. I saw this in Gunma, which is north, about 80 miles north of Tokyo, surrounded by mountains, really pretty areas. It's the area that my oldest son is teaching at. And we went and visited the home of one of the art teachers in the elementary school where he works. 
And we met with the teacher. We met with her parents who were in their 70s. And and we tucked into this house in this room with tatami mats. And we were under one of these kotatsus, these heated tables. We stuck our feet under there. There was a heater under there. And we had to be under there because the room was cold. But, you know, it was probably 48 degrees outside. There was no, the heater was not on. They had this the screen, the sliding doors opened to a sunroom where a cat was bathing in the sun or, or just taking in the sunlight. And we were overlooking a beautifully manicured garden. And I asked the owner, how long had she lived there? 41 years. So this was a house they hadn't torn down. When she was a child, they lived in an apartment and then they moved in this house next to her grandparents. When the grandparents died, they put the two houses together. The old man in his 70s was wearing a hat, fingerless gloves. It was cold. And eventually we were there a couple hours and we shut those sliding screen doors. We were tucked in under this table and we finally turned on the heat. But it came to realize that there's actually, you kind of get used to, to that. When our son has asked the Japanese, why do they do this? It, it's sort of, it's a, by a heated table. And I, this is just kind of what we do. And you realize for generations, they've done this. They like that connection to the outdoors, to have more, to have some airflow in the house and be able to look out onto the garden. That's what Zen gardens are. Some of these, these much older temples are situated that way. Should that be what we do if we know, if we're going to live in an area where we know a house that we buy is going to fall in price, should we build as cheaply and as small as possible? I don't think so. When you buy a car, you know the car is going to fall in value, but we don't buy the cheapest car. Some do. And I can tell you, there are, in Japan, they have what are called K-cars. And K-cars actually get a special, they get a yellow license plate. Because in, in Japan, you pay taxes each year on your car. And if you have a K-car, a very, very small, micro-compact car that doesn't go very fast, you don't have to pay as many taxes. But as the car gets older, the taxes actually go up on the car. And, and so there's, there's some incentive to, to have newer cars, just like there's incentive or at least the desire to own a newer house. But some people are willing to take, to buy a nicer car, even though the dollars they will lose in terms of depreciation is greater. And why are they, why are they willing to do that? What's lifestyle? We want certain things and we're willing as long as you recognize it. And there's no guarantee if you buy a house in the U.S. or you buy a house in an area where there's a bubble or this house that we're buying in Phoenix is not going to fall in value. And so when you, when you think about what should I buy, you could rent and, and be absolutely assured you'll be out of that money or you can buy and you'll know what the insurance cost will be in the taxes, but you won't know whether the house will fall in value. You will in Japan, going to fall in value because the population is shrinking. And even though they're starting to refurbish older homes, that's just not part of the culture. They want newer homes and they want homes without central heating. It's different in other places in, in Asia. In Korea, the houses in South Korea, the houses have central heating. They have, they're all heated by water flowing through underneath the floors. Damien Flanagan wrote in Japan Times, he bought a house in Japan knowing it would fall in price. And he kind of described the housing dynamics that we have mentioned in this episode. Flanagan writes, my house is the physical manifestation of my lifelong commitment to Japan. And even at one point in the future, the house is destroyed. What will always endure is the land beneath it. That connection to a very specific place and a tiny piece of Japanese soil is for me an almost spiritual bond. And I could see this with the, the woman whose, whose house we're, we're living in right now. She's been on this spot of land her entire life, even though it's the second house that's been there. 
Flanagan continues, if you wish to invest in such a Japanese home, be prepared for the way that the building itself will assume a place in your heart. Your return on that investment is best measured in terms of the pleasure it will yield and the doorway to the intimacies of community and the Japanese mind it will lure you into. We should always go in, I think, to a house that you buy for the lifestyle reason, considering that it could fall in value. Maybe not as guaranteed as it would be in Japan when you have a shrinking population. You just have a culture of new houses are worth more than older ones and that they're torn down often after 30 years. But even if you live somewhere else, don't go in hoping it will appreciate in value. We've done episodes on that. Oftentimes, what people believe is the gain they're getting from the houses is the leverage they haven't deployed. When they've borrowed 80 to 90% of the value and it goes up a little bit by inflation, that magnifies your gain. But many learned in 2006, 2007, the dangers of leverage and how that equity, if there was any, can be eaten up very quickly when home prices fall. So when you buy, don't use, try to use as little leverage as possible and make your choice based on lifestyle. Don't reach to get the biggest house you can. Just choose to live somewhere where you can have a connection to community and establish those roots and decide how much potential depreciation you're willing to take if home prices fall. Those then are excerpts from four episodes. What can we learn from them and from what's going on with Japan? But the first is bubbles can take a really long time to work through. If you're buying stocks at a PE of 52 and they disappoint on the earnings front, it can take a long time before they exceed that prior high. Now, a second lesson is demographics and productivity are a huge driver of those long-term returns. And, and Japanese companies have begun to, to be more efficient. We're seeing more women in the workforce. We're seeing better management of balance sheets. With the Japanese stock market being inexpensive, that, that's one reason I have around 16% of my stock allocation in Japanese stocks. We also have around 16% allocated to Japanese stocks in the Money for the Rest of Us Plus adaptive model portfolio examples. And so we'll see how things play out in the future. The third lesson, and hopefully it was conveyed in those episodes, is the stock market doesn't equal quality of life. That's just one aspect of life. Japan is a pleasant place to live. Fourth lesson is market dominance can change over time, with Japan being really the largest stock market in the world back in 1989, 37% of the overall stock market, now at six. The U.S. is at 58% of the global stock market as measured by size or market capitalization. Is it going to keep getting bigger? Probably not. More likely, it'll become a smaller portion, but we don't know by how much. That's why we want global diversification. And finally, the fifth lesson is all countries have their challenges. They're unique, and ultimately, they have to figure it out as they muddle through. They have financial challenges, economic challenges, political challenges, and things can change over time. At Money for the Rest of Us and at Asset Camp, we're, we're focused on the stock market, long-term drivers, the impact of cash flow, the growth in that cash flow, what investors are paying for that cash flow. But that's really just one aspect of any country. Everything else going on can influence that. And that's what we've seen in Japan over the past 34 years. Only return 1.1% annualized because of the political, the financial, 
the economic challenges and the fact that it started at a bubble with a P ratio of over 50 back in 1989. I hope you've enjoyed this extended episode of Money for the Rest of Us on Japan. Thanks for listening. You may be missing some of the best Money for the Rest of Us content. Our weekly Insider's Guide email newsletter goes beyond what we cover in our podcast episodes and helps elevate your investment journey with information that works best in written and visual formats. With the Insider's Guide, you can discover actionable investing insights provided only to our newsletter subscribers. Unlock greater investing confidence with high-value snippets from our premium products, plus membership and asset camp. Access exclusive news, offers, and events you won't hear about anywhere else. Further connect with the Money for the Rest of Us team and community. And when you sign up, we'll also send you our exclusive investing checklist to help you invest with more confidence right away. The Insider's Guide is the best next step to get the most out of your investment journey. If you're not on the list, go to moneyfortherestofus.com and subscribe with the Become a Better Investor sign-up box. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>